I believe that one of the most difficult things in all of life to deal with is unfulfilled desire. Unfulfilled desire. Now, we all know that to experience desire is really a very normal part of all of our lives. It's as natural as an infant crying for milk. All of us are born with a multitude of desires. Some of those desires are good, like the desire to help someone in need. Some of those desires are bad, like perhaps the desire to possess something that someone else has. And then there are a lot of desires that are really just kind of part of being human beings. They're not good or bad. They're just part of our humanity, like the desire for food or for friendship, things like that. Now, it's interesting because even those desires can become twisted when they're not surrendered to God. For example, if you're a single person in your 20s or your 30s, and you have a desire, a deep desire, to be married, to have a life companion, that's not a bad thing. That's a human thing. That's a desire that God himself has hardwired into your humanity. But that desire can take over your life if it's not surrendered to God. That desire can cast a shadow over everything you do. That desire can become an obsession. And that obsession can lead you into all kinds of foolishness. Unfulfilled desire can be very difficult to live with. The Bible puts it this way in the book of Proverbs. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some people deal with this, this sickness, by trying to eliminate desire altogether from their lives. Uh, We pretend it's not there. We try to manage it or push it aside out of our lives. Maybe we bury it beneath our busyness or our cynicism or our sense of humor. But when we do that, we lose something. I believe that to desire it all, to desire anything at all, opens our life up to the possibility of pain. But to try to eliminate desire altogether causes a kind of emotional death that is far worse. But all of this really opens up a very baffling question in my mind. Why would God give us desires and then leave us with those desires unfulfilled? Why would he do that? I mean, why would God so often cause us to have to live with this sickness, this disease of hope deferred? It doesn't really make sense to me all the time. And so the story of a woman named Hannah here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a story of a woman living with unfulfilled desire. And I believe this story can help all of us understand what it means to live with this problem and really even help us overcome this problem. And so let's look at the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah is introduced to us, first of all, as a woman who had every reason to be unhappy. If you look at verse 1, 
uh, we see that we learn about a certain man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. And then look at verse 2. It says he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, you do not have to be a marriage family therapist to recognize this was not a real good situation, right? This is not a good formula for a happy household. Polygamy was never God's perfect ideal, but it was a fact of life in ancient Israel. Wives in those times were actually partly viewed as a means of securing children. And children were essential to a family because through those children, of course, the family name and the land itself would be passed on. So it was very important in that culture. And so a woman who was unable to have children in that culture, unfortunately and tragically, was considered to be worthless. She would certainly feel that way. In Hannah's case, it's likely that she was Elkanah's first wife, but because she was infertile, he took a second wife to ensure that the family name wouldn't be snuffed out. To make matters worse, as you can see here from these verses, Peninnah was a virtual baby factory. Every time she looked at her husband, she got pregnant, it appears. Now, it was bad enough for Hannah to have to share her husband with another woman, but to have to stand by and watch this woman pop out babies year after year had to be practically unbearable for her. I can just see Penina sort of doting on her children and maybe with a rather smirking grin speak to Hannah and say something like, Oh, Hannah, I know how hard it must be that you're not able to have children, but really, dear, it's a blessing in disguise. I have so many, I don't know how we're going to feed them all. I think the worst time of the year, as it often is in families, would have been holidays and vacations. In Hannah's case, it was this annual pilgrimage, supposed to be a happy time, this annual pilgrimage that they took every year to Shiloh to worship. Look at verse 3. It says, Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. So this was supposed to be a celebration. And yet, I have no doubt that it was torture for Hannah. Emotional torture. Imagine just the walk, just the trek that they would make to Shiloh. And she would have all of these children of Peninnah's bumping into her, wiping their noses on her skirt, begging them to carry her. And so it's no wonder that Hannah would arrive in Shiloh in a state of great depression and discouragement. And so when they got there, Hannah then also had to sit and watch as her husband would serve Peninnah and her children first. The custom of the Jews in those days was as part of the sacrifice, part of the sacrifice would go to the priest and part of it would be eaten by the family in the presence of God, which must rejoicing. 
Like I said, it was supposed to be a very happy time. But when you're living with unfulfilled desire, what are supposed to be the best times can be the most painful times. Look at verse 4. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons, underline all, and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Notice that he gave Hannah a double portion. Uh, We don't know exactly why. Maybe he felt guilty. Maybe he felt sorry for her, sitting there all alone, so depressed. Uh, Maybe it was because he wanted to show Hannah that, that he really did love her, that even in a certain way she was special to him. Whatever the reason, it didn't make Hannah feel any better at all. As a matter of fact, it backfired. Look at verse 6. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she, that is Hannah, wept and would not eat. So the final sort of wrench of agony that was, uh, was that Peninnah would not keep quiet about her fertility. She would find a thousand ways to remind Hannah that Hannah was without children. She taunted her. She mocked her. I think every word must have felt like an arrow in Hannah's heart. And perhaps the most difficult thing that Hannah would have to face was the reality of what it says twice in the text. I hope you noticed it. Two times, not once, but two times. Whenever the Bible repeats something, you want to take notice of it. Two times, what does it say? The Lord had closed her womb. Twice. So twice we're told in this text that the the problem that she had, this unfulfilled desire that she had, really came from the Lord. Isn't it true this is one of the hardest things in your life and my life to accept that our limitations, our deferred hope, our unfulfilled desire actually as difficult as they may be, and, and no matter how hard we struggle with them, they come from God himself. They come from God himself. I, I don't think we really want to believe that. I don't think a lot of us will even allow ourselves to accept that reality. We like to believe that, you know, maybe it's just because of chance or circumstances. Uh, But we have to come to that place where we recognize that, that we have a sovereign God and he is sovereign over the individual circumstances of each and every one of his children. We have to come to that place. It was God who made Hannah. And it was God who made Hannah a woman in the first place. It was God who gave Hannah the capacity for motherhood. It was God who gave Hannah the hunger to have a child, the yearning to be a mother. But as this text says so plainly, God somehow was also involved in her infertility. That must have made her feel so much worse. As a matter of fact, the text says, She wept, and she would not eat. 
And then when things got real bad, Elkanah, typical male husband, tried to step in and fix the problem. How did he try to do that? Look at verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Ladies, would you answer that question? No, you're not. As a matter of fact, I'd love to just have one son. That would be much better than you. I'm sure that's exactly what she's feeling. And you know what strikes me about this? This is a reminder to us that there is a place in each of our hearts, and I think this is true not just of women but of men, there is a place in each of our hearts that no one, not even a well-meaning husband or wife, can touch. That no one can reach but God himself. I want to ask you, what would you say to Hannah at this point? I mean, if Hannah came to you, a, a brother or sister in Christ, and Hannah was looking for help, what would you say to Hannah at this point? Would you say something like, well, Hannah, look on the bright side. I mean, kids can be a real pain in the neck. Uh, you have a lot more freedom. You can serve the Lord a lot more freely without those children. Or would you say, Hannah, have you ever considered the fact that there's some sin in your life, some unconfessed sin maybe that you haven't really dealt with before the Lord, and that's the real problem, Hannah? Have you thought about that? Uh, maybe you'd buy her a book on fertility. I don't know. Uh, maybe a much more wiser thing to do, maybe you would just come alongside of her and encourage her not to lose hope, to keep trying. Maybe you would just come alongside of her and just not say anything at all. Just be with her and listen. You might also want to ask yourself another question. Uh, what would you do if you were Hannah? How would you handle this? And, and really the question is a larger desire, or a larger question. How do you handle unfulfilled desires in your life? Uh, do you complain about it? Do you whine about it? Do you lash out at whoever's available, your husband, your wife, your kids, your dog? Uh, do you retreat behind a wall of silence? Do you become more religious, trying by your own religious activity to somehow appease a God who might finally grant your desire? How do you, how do you handle unfulfilled desire? Look what Hannah did, verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now you can see here, picture in your mind's eye, Hannah is, as it says, greatly distressed. She's basically beside herself. She weeps bitterly. 
But that does not keep her from God. Rather, it seems to drive her to God in prayer. She barks her requests at God. Look at my affliction. Remember me. Do not forget me. Give me a son. But she does it with humility. She recognizes God's greatness twice. She calls him the Lord of hosts. She recognizes that he is the almighty God. He can do whatever he wants. And twice she calls herself your maid servant. But at the heart of this prayer, as you probably noticed, is a vow. A vow. Jews believed that anything that was not cut, I don't really quite get the rationale behind this, but anything that wasn't cut belonged to the Lord. And so Nazarites took this vow that they would not cut their hair to show that they were set apart in some special way, usually for a set period of time, to the Lord. So Hannah vows to set her son to the Lord all the days of his life. And and it sounds a little bit to me like she's bargaining with God. God, if you do this, I'll do that. By the way, anybody ever bargain with God? Anybody play that game with God? I've played that game a lot. God, if you do this for me, you know, I will give you this much money. Or if you do this, I'll go to church every Sunday. That doesn't work for me because i got to be there, but you might say that. We bargain with God. Now, the misconception behind this is thinking that we somehow really have something that God wants that he can't have. Right? Not real good thinking. Hannah, I believe, was simply acknowledging that if God gave her a son, that son would belong to God. That's true, isn't it? It's true of all of us, really. Uh, Perhaps she was even coming to the realization that having children wasn't about her. It was about him. Maybe she was coming to see that. Maybe her offering was a recognition of that. Uh, But her prayer didn't stop there. This this was not sort of a fast food, drive-through prayer. Look what happens next, verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving. Have you ever done that? Of course you have. But her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from her. How is that for pastoral compassion? I mean, goodness gracious. Poor Hannah. So so think about what Hannah's had to deal with. First she has to deal with Peninnah's jabs. Then she has to deal with her husband's bumbling effort to console her. Now she has to deal with her pastor's rebuke misjudging her broken heart and basically in incredible insensitivity saying, woman, go home and sober up. Do you ever feel like no one gets it? You think Hannah was feeling like no one got it? Without question. So I wouldn't blame Hannah at this point for curling up in the fetal position 
and checking out. But Hannah's got some spunk. And so Hannah defends herself, not in an angry or proud way, but I think in a very respectful and a very humble way. Look what she says in verse, six, verse 15. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Look how Hannah describes herself and her actions. She's oppressed in spirit. She says, I have been pouring out not wine, but my soul before the Lord. She says, I have spoken out of my great concern and provocation. And it's interesting because she did all of this, as we know, without saying a word. And there are times in our life when our desperate longing is so great, we can't even get the words out. As a matter of fact, it's interesting in this context, the New Testament talks about prayer, and it says there are times we pray with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever done that? You ever prayed with groanings too deep for words? Your heart aches. And then finally, Hannah, finally Hannah hears the first encouraging word that she had heard in a long, long time. Look at verse 17. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So really what happens here is Eli adds his own prayer to hers. Now remember, he doesn't know what she had asked for. He has no ideas what she had asked for the Lord for. But he says, may the Lord grant your petition. And that, in a way, is a prayer itself. And it seems that's all Hannah needed to hear. She goes home, she gets pregnant, and she has a son whose name was Samuel. And he, Samuel, would become the next great, great leader of Israel. That's the story. So, back to my original question. What is this story? What does this story teach us? What does Hannah teach us? about living with unfulfilled desire. And so let me make a few observations about this that hopefully will be helpful to you in your own life. The first thing is very obvious. And it is simply that God will use unfulfilled desire in our life to teach us, even to drive us, to pray. And God loves to answer prayer. We know that. Verse 19, here in our text, says, and the Lord remembered her. Verse 20 tells us that she named her son Samuel because that name and its meaning would remind her that she had asked the Lord for him. And he granted him to her. And so I think it would be very wrong to miss this very simple lesson. Hannah learned that no one or nothing could fulfill her desire but God. And so she brought her desire to him. And I just wonder if that's perhaps part of the reason why God gives us 
unfulfilled desire, unfulfilled longing to live with in the first place? Because have you ever wondered what your prayer life would be like without it? Have you ever wondered how different, maybe how seldom you would come to the Lord in prayer if you didn't have to live with desire that was unfulfilled? And, and, and here's where I think we sometimes make a mistake. We hesitate at times, I think, bringing things that we would classify as personal needs before the Lord. I mean, I've thought about this. It would be far more spiritual for Hannah to pray something like this. Dear Lord, I know that you know what is best for me. I would love to have a son, but most of all, Lord, I want to glorify your name. And so whatever you think is best, God, I will accept that. I mean, what an awesome prayer that is, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it have been a better story if Hannah had prayed that prayer? But that's not how she prays. Hannah does not think through the proper thing to pray. This is not a prepared speech. This is a desperate cry for help. And so I believe Hannah's story gives us permission to bring our most personal desires to the Lord. I believe she gives us permission and encouragement to be very specific, to be very direct with God. In a way, we need to be more childlike. Have you, if you have children, and I've raised three, have you ever noticed that children ask for stuff all day long? They're like asking machines. They don't filter out their requests. A four-year-old doesn't think, you know, in his head, you know, I have this desire, I have this need, and, uh, and, but I really shouldn't ask Daddy and Mommy for it because they have much bigger things on their mind and they don't have time for this request. Have you ever seen a four-year-old do that? I, I, if you have one, let me, let me meet him. I'd love to meet him. They don't rank their desires in terms of legitimacy. No, they just ask. And, in a, and we should too. Two verses come to mind that are probably really familiar to you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your, what? Anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Literally, it's he cares for your cares. Wow. So you don't have to be selective. Whatever your heart aches for and longs for, bring it to him because you matter to him and your cares matter to him. And of course, we all know Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So bring everything to him, all of your requests, all of your desires. Our God is the God who clothes the lilies and feeds the sparrows. How much more will he take care of you? There's nothing too small for God. And I understand that God will not always give us what we ask for, but we know that he cares about us and he will answer. So God uses unfulfilled desire to teach us and drive us and motivate us to pray. But you all know that. I mean, you're well-taught people. You have good Bible teaching here, I'm sure. And so you all know that. And you're probably thinking right now, you know, we didn't need this guy to drive 500 miles to be here to tell us that. We understand that. But it's not quite so simple, okay? 
Because there's something else in this story that we have to notice. And so the second principle I want you to understand is that God also uses unfulfilled desire to deepen our walk with him. And look how this was true in Hannah's life. There is something you must not miss in this story, and I glossed over it on purpose before. But the answer to Hannah's prayer, which was the birth of her son Samuel, did you notice that was not the thing that brought her out of her depression? How many of you noticed that? A few of you. Did you notice? It's not like she was desperate and depressed, and then she prayed, and then God answered her prayer, and her son was born, and she lived happily ever after. No. Look again at verse 18. Verse 18 says, She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And then it says, So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So before she wouldn't eat, now she eats. She joins the celebration. Before she wept bitterly and her heart was sad, not anymore. And somehow, somehow, the matter was settled for Hannah right there and then, inwardly. And all of this happened before the prayer was answered, before she got pregnant and had her son. How, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? In some ways, honestly, I think it's kind of unexplainable. I think it's one of those God things. It's a mystery. But, but you probably also know that this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about years later in that verse I mentioned earlier. Because not only does Paul say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's the next line? And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. That's what Hannah experienced here, I think. This is a, this is a story that illustrates that wonderful truth. It's not humanly explainable. It's a peace that is beyond comprehension. It's a mystery, but it comes from God. I have to tell you that my own personal experience is that this does not happen, happen as I once thought easily, this peace. This peace doesn't happen as I wave some kind of like magic prayer wand over my problems. It's not a formula. It's not like we put a prayer nickel into the slot and out comes peace. It never works that way with me. It comes out of a process of working things through in the presence of God and of coming to a place in my life where I, I know he gets it and I know he cares and I know that I can just leave it with him and whatever happens, he'll take care of it. One of the things that happens in this process is that we deepen in our understanding of God. We deepen. Our focus switches from us to God. Uh, there's, a, there's a line in a verse by a poet named Robert Browning. It's just a little, it's a little phrase, but it's helped me here. 
in this phrase of one of his poems, he says, "'Tis looking downward that makes one dizzy." "'Tis looking downward that makes one dizzy." When we look at our life and our circumstances and our world, we get dizzy. But when we look up at God, things become clear. Later on in chapter 2, Hannah looks up to God. She sings a song of praise to God. Uh, You might know that song as the song of Hannah. And she looks up and she says some wonderful things. One of the things she says in this song of praise after God has granted her requests, she says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. Wow. I I believe she was coming to that realization of who God really is even before her prayer was answered. She looked up and she saw, this is a God I can trust. This is a God of knowledge. This is a God who knows. He knows me. He knows my problem. And this is a God who is a rock like no other rock. He never changes. He never moves. I believe she was deepening in her understanding of God through this process. Just like we do. And she also... And we also learn something about the way God works through unfulfilled desire. Something especially meaningful that for us as followers of Christ. I want you to track with me here. If you look down at chapter 2 in her song, in verse 4, she says, she says the, the, the bows of the mighty are shattered. So the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble, she says, gird on strength. And then she sings of this great reversal where human strength is shattered. She says, those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. And then she says, and I love this line, it was personal for her, she says, even the barren gives birth to seven. And, you know, seven is the perfect number. That's like, wow, that's a lot of kids, seven. And then she says, but she who has many, like Penina, languishes. One of the things I want you to consider, it's kind of a footnote, but it's important. In the New Testament, the song of Hannah is found on the lips of who? Mary, the mother of Jesus. The song of Hannah becomes the song of Mary in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And just like here in Samuel, Luke's gospel begins with a woman without a baby. Mary, she's not barren, but she's a virgin. And she, like Hannah, is given a baby she didn't expect. And that baby, like Samuel, even in a better way than Samuel, is going to change everything. He will invoke an even greater reversal. And so Mary sings in what we call the Magnificat. Mary says this, he has brought down rulers from his thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. See, this is our song as well today. This is a, this is a, a new covenant song, not just an old covenant song. Every Christ follower knows this song. Because you and I were helpless and hungry and barren. 
but through the cross, through the work of Jesus Christ, through the unfathomable love of God in the gospel, he has reversed our destiny. And so Hannah's unfulfilled desire brought her to that place of helplessness. That's a very hard place to be. But it's only when we come to that place and we turn to Christ that we can experience the salvation and the strength of God. And you know what? This is not just how you begin the Christian life. This is also how you live the Christian life. A lot of times we think, you know, I begin the Christian life helpless, a sinner needing grace, and then we think we continue the Christian life, you know, strong and mighty and holy. But the fact of the matter is, throughout our Christian life, God brings us to this place through our unfulfilled desire of helplessness, of feebleness. He humbles us so that he can play out this great reversal through Jesus, our Lord, once again in our lives. There's one more thing I want you to see about unfulfilled desire from this story. I want you to see how God used Hannah's unfulfilled desire to accomplish purposes beyond her wildest imagination. Hannah's vow, you must understand, Hannah's vow and Samuel's life represents a turning point in Israel's history. The birth of Samuel was a crucial hinge upon which the history of Israel swung. So in his lifetime, her son Samuel would cleanse Israel of idolatry, establish what we call the Davidic monarchy, which would lead to, of course, the son of David, Jesus Christ. And yet, for that to happen, Samuel would need to grow up in the unique environment of the house of God at Shiloh. He would need to be mentored by a man like Eli the priest. So here's the deal. Think about this now. If Hannah had not been brought to that place of depression through her unfulfilled desire, she never would have made that vow to give her son to the Lord, and he wouldn't have had the training he needed to become Israel's next great leader. See what I'm talking about? Unfulfilled desire. In the midst of unfulfilled desire, we don't always see God's bigger purposes, do we? We don't always see the grand plan and purpose of God, of what he is doing. But make make no mistake, I promise you that God is doing something greater than you can imagine through your unfulfilled desire. He is fulfilling his purposes, and his purposes are always good. I think this was the realization the Apostle Paul came to in Romans chapter 11. Paul himself was struggling, I think, at this point to understand God. How does God work? I don't get his ways. And so Paul cries out at the end of Romans chapter 11 in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. And then he says, How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. So we can't always see what God is doing, can we? His ways are unsearchable and unfathomable. 
We're not going to always understand at any given point in the timeline of our life the bigger picture of what God is doing. But I promise you, as God is my witness, he is doing something better than you could ever imagine. And he will use your unfulfilled desire to accomplish that. God never wastes your pain. He never wastes your pain. He always uses it for a greater purpose. And so I want to I leave you this morning just with a question, if I could. What is the one thing in your life that year after year remains an unfulfilled desire? I mean, you know, you have small groups at this church, and do you ever feel like a broken record? Prayer time in your small group, hey, what do you want to pray for? Oh, well, we know what, we know what Lisa wants. It's every week the same thing. And you feel kind of like, you know, what's the one thing in your life? What is it? That one place where your soul could become bitter and resentful. I don't think there is anything more precious and dear in the Bible than to know that our unfulfilled desires are given to us by the hand of God. Our circumstances come from His hand. He gives them to us not for us to be angry, resentful, bitter, and despairing, but that we might bring them to him as Hannah did, put them in his hands, and let, us, and let him lead us through to the greater solution he had in mind all along, so that we too, like Hannah, will have a song of praise on our lips. And so I ask you this morning, will you do that? Will you do that? Will you bring it to him? Sometimes I hear worship leaders start a worship service and ours have made the same mistake at times. And they'll start out and they'll say, you know what? Come into worship and leave all your problems at the door and just come into worship. And I think, what a bunch of baloney. Bring your problems here, right? Bring your problems. Bring your unfulfilled desires. Bring your struggles. Bring your sins. Bring it right into worship. And bring it before the throne of God. Pour your heart out to him. Come to him in bitterness of soul like Hannah did. You won't shock him. Plead with him to intervene for you. Bark your requests at him. And while you're at it, ask for some grace to wait for the answer. Ask for grace as well to deal with the penanas in your life who never stop jabbing you. Ask for grace to deal with the Elkanahs, the well-meaning people in your life who try to help, but they don't get it. Ask for grace to deal with the Elis who accuse you of something that is absolutely false. Ask for grace to deal with all of those things. Some of you, as I am, am wrestling with great unfulfilled desire in our lives. The story of Hannah has been a wonderful encouragement to me. I hope it is to yours too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace this morning. We thank you for this wonderful story of Hannah. And Father, I pray for each and every person here that is struggling with some form of unfulfilled desire that you would give them much grace in the midst of it and help us all to trust you as a God who is a God of knowledge, who knows us 
and a God who is always working out your much greater purposes in our life, even through our pain. We love you and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.